0: As a patron, you get access to ad-free episodes along with patron-only episodes. And if you subscribe just a little more a month, you get access to True Crime Fan Club Prime. A monthly episode is released based on the topic of your choosing. So head on over to patreon.com slash to learn more. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. The Hippocratic Oath is a promise made by a doctor. In this oath, the physician swears to do no harm, promising to respect a patient's autonomy, providing confidentiality and esteem. The trust between a doctor and patient is almost always implicit and immediate because of this oath, Moreover, doctors attend school for years and years, accumulating mountains of debt in the process. Therefore, most people automatically presume they must be able to be trusted to care for our health, which is our very livelihood. But what happens when the person taking the oath says the words, but means none of them? The destruction that can follow a doctor who has set out to harm is immeasurable, Even more so when the harm leads to the death of dozens of innocent victims. Okay, on to the show. Joseph Michael Swingo was a slight, ordinary-looking man. He worked in the healthcare industry, which would make it seem as though he liked to help people but Joseph didn't want to help. He hated helping. No, Joseph wanted to hurt people. He felt his best when he was making others feel their worst. It started to become almost like a sexual fantasy. He could never wait to inject some innocent patient with an overdose amount of a toxic drug or slip some arsenic into the tea of a coworker. Joseph was an actual serial killer who presented as a friendly neighborhood doctor, a wolf in sheep's clothing. His victim count is estimated to be around 60 or more and includes a combination of patients and other colleagues. He committed all of the murders between 1981 and 1997, usually by poisoning his victims with arsenic. The crimes took place all over the world, from Zimbabwe to Illinois, Ohio, New York, and South Dakota. However, it was during his time at university, in his early 20s, when his troubles began to surface and grow. Joseph was lazy and didn't like to study. Even though he was highly intelligent, he took a job as an EMT, and there his fascination with dying people and death began to blossom. While it didn't appear to raise any red flags at the time, several patients who were Joseph's responsibility to perform well-being checks on ended up coding with a severe emergency. Sadly, five of them died, although they weren't officially counted in his murder total. About one month before Joseph's college graduation, he was discovered to be falsifying checkups during his OBGYN rounds. Some other students believed he had been doing so almost since he began school. Maybe because he genuinely was brilliant or perhaps because they just felt sorry for Joseph. The college ethics committee had one member that voted for giving Joseph a second chance. Because a unanimous vote was required to expel a student, Joseph was ultimately able to graduate a year after all of his other classmates. The reason his delay in graduating was because he was required to do the OBGYN rotation again, along with many other assignments in different specialties. Joseph managed to graduate medical school, but the dean left an unfavorable evaluation in his file, which wouldn't improve his chances of landing meaningful work. Despite all of that, Joseph did find a surgical internship in 1983 at the Ohio State University Medical Center. Upon completion of the internship, he was supposed to walk right into a residency in neurosurgery, While at the OSU Med Center, patients began falling ill and dying at a disturbingly fast rate. It was first noticed by several nurses, mainly because most of the patients started out quite healthy for the most part. No one could figure out what was happening to these patients, but there was one common factor. Each time a healthy patient suddenly died, Joseph was interning on the floor at that time. That fact may have gone unnoticed forever. However, one night, a nurse walked in on Joseph injecting a patient with what he described as medicine, but the patient died later, and it was an unexpected death. Several nurses began noticing Joseph's behavior and began adding up that he was always working when patients were dying. Some of the nurses even went so far as to file a complaint about Joseph and their suspicions, But the hospital administration essentially told the nurses they were wrong. A brief investigation was conducted in 1984, and Joseph was not sanctioned. Though he was exonerated of the nurses' claims against him, Joseph's work ethic left a lot to be desired. He didn't perform to 100% of his ability, and therefore, when his internship ended, he was not offered residency after all. In July 1984, he went back home to Quincy, Illinois. He got a job at the Adams County Ambulance Corps as an EMT. He should not have been hired there. He had a black mark on his record for being fired from a previous EMT job because he forced a heart patient to drive to the hospital. Somehow, his negative record slipped through the cracks. It didn't take long, however, for Joseph's true colors to show and many of his fellow paramedics began to become sick far more than usual. Some got violently ill. In fact, almost every time after Joseph prepared coffee or brought in food for his coworkers, people seemed to end up sick. It was happening so frequently that in October 1984, Quincy police arrested Joseph after finding him to possess arsenic and other various poisons. Police were following up on a tip about Joseph, one which proved to be fruitful. Many people were shocked that an aspiring physician would harm the very people for whom he pledged to care. It was even more shocking that he would hurt his co-workers. They were the people standing on the front lines with him, trying to heal and save lives, not destroy and take the lives of innocent others. On August 23, 1985, Joseph was sentenced to five years in prison for aggravated battery for poisoning his co-workers. His conviction shined a bright light on the Ohio State University Medical Center and all of their failures, including not calling the police on Joseph right away. The university's law school dean, James Meeks, reviewed the hospital after Joseph's arrest and conviction, and he didn't hold back in his recriminations and finger pointing. The Franklin County prosecutors thought about recharging Joseph with attempted murder and murder However, they chose not to pursue those charges after determining that there wasn't enough evidence to obtain a conviction. Joseph was released from prison in 1989, and he immediately moved to Newport News, Virginia. He found a job at the State Career Center as a counselor. Once again, it wasn't long before he lost this job. This time, it was after he was discovered to be creating a scrapbook about various disasters, which was disturbing to say the least. But he was doing so while on work time, which was ultimately the terminable offense. phase, Joseph found another job, this time at a company called ATI Coal, a division of CITA Logistics. The company is now called Vanguard Energy, located in Newport News, Virginia. He was a laboratory technician there, and yet again, shortly after his employment began, a number of Joseph's coworkers began to fall ill. Several employees started to complain of terrible stomach pains. It was about this same time that Joseph met Kristen Kinney, who was a nurse. He fell madly in love with Kristen, and she him. They planned to get married once they were a little bit more established. In 1991, Joseph resigned from his job because he wanted to pursue his dream of being a doctor again. After he left his job with A.T.I. Cole, The FBI started poking around and asking his former coworkers questions about him. While they never had anything solid to charge him with, he was on their radar. The feds came around a few different times to ask questions about Joseph, but no further action was ever taken. In an attempt to change his fate, Joseph legally changed his name to Daniel J. Adams in 1991. He tried applying for residency at the Ohio Valley Medical Center in Wheeling, West Virginia, but didn't have any luck securing employment. In July 1992, Joseph finally managed to land a job at the Sanford USD Medical Center in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. The reason he was able to get the position is that he forged documents such as identification and diplomas to present himself as a reputable physician. Taking it a step further, Joseph forged a certificate from the Illinois Department of Corrections, which made his criminal record appear to only have a misdemeanor conviction for simple assault, for fighting with a coworker. His newly forged criminal documents show Joseph as only having served six months in jail, rather than five years in prison. What was perhaps the most shocking forgery, however, was the, quote, restoration of civil rights letter he procured. It was allegedly from the Virginia governor and stated some seriously outlandish lies, such as the governor supposedly restored Joseph's right to vote and serve jury duty, and that Joseph was leading a, quote, exemplary lifestyle. The letter continued, alleging that since Joseph only committed a misdemeanor and no further crimes, he, the governor, was restoring these rights, and it actually worked. It was shocking, but for a time, Joseph managed to fool everyone and present himself as a professional physician with an excellent reputation. Because he had gotten away with everything he tried thus far, Joseph was flagrant with his forgeries, and he thought he was above being caught. Joseph was successful in his role at Sanford USD Medical Center, but he wanted more. So much that in October 1992, he applied for the American Medical Association, or the AMA, using his falsified documents. Now the AMA conducts far more comprehensive background investigations than most smaller medical centers. However, in performing the background check, the AMA discovered Joseph's poisoning conviction, despite his use of a new name. In what could almost be considered a funny coincidence, on Thanksgiving that same day, The Justice Files, which is a television show on the Discovery Channel, aired a segment on Joseph Swango. With pressure mounting from scared co-workers calling about Joseph to the negative AMA investigative results, Sanford chose to fire Joseph. Almost immediately after that, Kristen left Joseph and returned to Virginia, citing severe migraines. However, as soon as she was gone from him, the migraines stopped bothering her. Joseph didn't stick around, either. With the AMA background investigation and the Sanford termination hanging over him, Joseph took off again, this time heading for another residency program at the State University of New York at Stony Brook School of Medicine. The VA Medical Center, which is located in Northport, New York, was the place Joseph had his first rotation of internal medicine. Almost immediately, Joseph's patients began dying for no explicable reason, and despite being relatively healthy. Sadly, approximately four months after Joseph started this new career, Kristen Kinney completed suicide. Her heartbroken mother expressed her complete shock that a man like Joseph Swango was allowed to practice medicine, and she wanted to notify anyone she could about this dangerous man. She called around to some friends of friends and people in the medical field, and they informed the authorities where Joseph was and what he was doing. Joseph was immediately called into a meeting with his superiors, who questioned him about the allegations of his past. Joseph admitted to his lies and was fired on the spot. However, this was not enough for the public, who was alerted to the situation. Ultimately, both the dean at Stony Brook, Jordan Cohen, and the head of the psychiatry department, Alan Miller, were fired for their parts in Joseph's hiring and employment. In a bittersweet moment of revenge, Jordan Cohen sent an email to over 100 other medical schools and 1,000 teaching hospitals, warning them about Joseph. This move ensured that Joseph would never get work again, assuming he didn't wind up in prison. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Since his most recent job was with a VA hospital, the FBI stepped into the investigation into Joseph Swango, a.k.a. Daniel Adams. Despite their involvement, Joseph completely fell off the map and anyone's radar for some time. In 1994, the FBI received a tip that Joseph was living in Atlanta, Georgia. Shockingly, he got a job right away working as a chemist at a wastewater facility of a computer equipment company. The FBI notified the company Joseph was working for, and they immediately fired him for lying on his application. The FBI secured a warrant for his arrest for using false credentials at the VA hospital. However, by the time it was signed and ready to serve, Joseph was on the run again. This time, he left the country. In November 1994, he accepted a job at Menene Hospital in Zimbabwe, which was offered to him based on his false paperwork. As with every other medical center or hospital Joseph worked in, his patients began to get sick quite mysteriously, that is, including seemingly healthy patients who showed no reason to become so deathly ill. The strange deaths continued for nearly a year before the staff at that hospital caught on. Joseph was arrested, charged, and sent for a trial in Zimbabwe. He hired attorney David Coulthart. However, Joseph managed to escape while he was waiting for the trial, and he fled to Zambia, where he hid out and seemingly fell off everybody's radar yet again. In March 1997, armed with more false documents, Joseph applied for a job at the Royal Hospital in Duran, Saudi Arabia. In the meantime, Tom Valerie, a criminal investigator for the Virginia Office of the Inspector General, was still working the case against Joseph Swango. He wanted to catch Joseph badly. He conferred with the forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Charlene Thomason, throughout his investigation. Dr. Thomason provided an assessment, then built a profile on Joseph for the case, focusing on Joseph's fraudulent application to work at the VA hospital. During Joseph's time at the VA hospital, he was able to prescribe prescription narcotics, it was because of the false documents, the access to prescription drugs, and mounds of other evidence and the Immigration and Naturalization Service, or INS, was finally able to compile enough evidence to arrest Joseph. Luck was on the law side when he had to stop in Chicago at O'Hare International Airport for a layover flight on his way to Saudi Arabia. Police located Joseph there in June 1997 and immediately arrested him without further incident. Joseph knew enough to know that he was made and that he'd better admit to something. If he admitted guilt to some lesser crime, he could do his time and, with any luck, avoid further questions about what he was doing with his time in Zimbabwe. In March, 1998, Joseph Swango pled guilty to defrauding the government. In July, he was sentenced to three and a half years in prison. In addition to the prison term, the judge ordered that Joseph was not permitted to work in the kitchen or with food in any way, and he wasn't allowed to have a job where he handed out drugs to prisoners. In a bizarre twist of irony, just before he was caught and finally charged with murder, Joseph tried to sue his former employer in Zimbabwe for wrongful termination. He alleged he was fired based on the jealous lies that were spread by his peers, Joseph managed to raise financial support and hired a human rights attorney, David Coltart, who was also fooled into believing that he, Joseph, was the victim. David heard rumors and stories, but without being able to confirm anything with the police, he took Joseph on as a client. After all, what criminal would go out of their way to call attention to themselves by filing a lawsuit? However, this logic didn't stop Joseph. While serving his brief sentence, the feds began to build a case against Joseph for the murders they believed he committed. Investigators even went so far as to unearth some of Joseph's deceased patients to test for poison. So many of these patients' deaths were sudden and never made sense, but all of the speculation and conjecture was finally put to rest when the exhumed patients showed poison in their systems. The FBI had all the evidence they needed now, Armed with plenty of evidence, they were prepared to charge Joseph for the deaths of the bodies they had exhumed, since those deaths they were able to prove with substantial evidence. Nearly a week before Joseph was set to be paroled from prison, on July 11, 2000, the federal government charged Joseph with three counts of murder for the poisoning deaths of Thomas and Marco, George Siano, and Aldo Serrini. Joseph was also charged with one count of mail fraud one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud, one count of making false statements, and one count of assault. In addition to his federal charges, the authorities of Zimbabwe formally charged Joseph with poisoning his patients. Five out of the seven patients he treated there ended up dying. The indictment on his stateside charges was on July 17th. Joseph pleaded not guilty on all counts. Despite his initial not guilty plea, Joseph quickly changed his mind when he was offered a plea deal, which meant that if he pled guilty to the fraud and murder charges, he would not face a death penalty. More importantly, he wouldn't face extradition to Zimbabwe, which was something Joseph wanted to avoid. Joseph pled guilty to fraud and murder on September 6, 2000. The judge sat and listened, horrified as prosecutors read several entries from Joseph's journals where he detailed his crimes and the utter happiness he felt when he killed innocent people. Joseph rarely varied from his methods of killing. When he was dealing directly with his patients, he would typically inject them with whatever drug they were prescribed or whatever he could get his hands on. Joseph would administer such a large dose that the patient would experience cardiac arrest or some other emergency that would ultimately take their life. However, when his coworkers or anyone else that wasn't a patient gave Joseph the urge to kill, he would do so by poisoning his targets. His go-to poison was usually arsenic. Joseph appeared before the court, a stone-faced man who wasn't sorry and didn't bother to act like it. His plea included the poisoning deaths of three separate men that he murdered during his time in New York, working at the VA hospital. His deal also included his guilty plea to assaulting a couple of patients in Africa, a patient at the Ohio State University Medical Center, and a patient at the VA hospital. Each of the patients he was charged with assaulting all died on Joseph's watch. Judge Jacob Meisher sentenced Joseph to three consecutive life sentences. He was then required to stand trial in Ohio for the death of Cynthia Ann McGee, another one of Joseph's patients he was officially charged and convicted for her death. Cynthia had the terrible misfortune of encountering Joseph in 1984 at the Ohio State University Medical Center. On January 14, 1984, Cynthia spiked a fever between 102 and 104 degrees, and Joseph was sent to her room to take blood. Less than an hour after he left her room, she coded and died. Joseph lied about Cynthia's cause of death citing it initially as heart failure. However, the actual reason for her death was an overdose of potassium that Joseph injected into her. The shot stopped her heart, and Joseph pled guilty in Cynthia's case and was sentenced to life in prison with a chance for parole after 20 years. He displayed no sympathy for what he had done. Because of his federal life sentences, Joseph will never be free from prison. Cynthia's parents were horrified to learn of the real nature of their daughter's death. Still, they were incredibly grateful to the FBI for continuing to pursue the case against Joseph and ultimately gain justice for their daughter. Another of Joseph's patients was Baron Harris. Barron received a lethal injection of drugs from Joseph, and he ended up in a coma and then later died. Kenia's Musiziwa was an impoverished farmer who had a nearly deadly encounter with Joseph. He recalled a night he was sleeping when he was suddenly awoken by Joseph, who was working under a pseudonym, and called Dr. Mike by his patients. Kenius said that when he woke up, he felt Dr. Mike pulling his pajama pants down and injecting him in his buttocks. Unsure of what drug was entering his bloodstream, Kinius began to feel numb and wasn't able to call for help right away. He struggled to breathe, thinking he was going to faint. He finally managed to call for help and told a nurse what had happened. Sadly, this was but one of many incidents that involved Joseph. There were several other strange deaths after Kineas' run-in. Even Joseph's cleaning woman complained to some of her family members that she thought Joseph had poisoned her. The hospital's foreman, Philemon Chipoko, was on the men from having his leg amputated But after Joseph visited his room, Philemon suddenly died. The mounting complaints against Joseph continued and ultimately cost him the job. Though far too many terrible things occurred while Joseph was working, the hospital turned a blind eye despite all of the complaints against him. Perhaps if the hospital had acted more swiftly and sternly, many lives could have been saved. Joseph Michael Swingo was born on October 21, 1954, in Tacoma, Washington. He was raised in Quincy, Illinois, however, and graduated from Quincy Catholic Boys High School in 1972. He was brilliant with an IQ of 160. He went on to become valedictorian his graduating year and was recognized with several different awards. One such award was the National Merit Scholarship, High School Student of the Year. In addition to his academia, he played the clarinet in the high school band. Despite attending a Catholic high school, he was raised as a Presbyterian. Joseph served in the Marine Corps after high school, leaving with an honorable discharge in 1980. After the military, he attended Quincy College, which is now called Quincy University. There, Joseph graduated summa cum laude. He later pursued his doctorate at the Southern Illinois University School of Medicine, eventually realizing his goal of becoming a physician. Joseph is currently serving his sentence at the ADX Florence Supermax Prison in Florence, Colorado. The prison contains some of the worst and most dangerous criminals in the federal prison system. Although he was only convicted of four murders, the FBI estimates that Joseph may have killed as many as 60 innocent people. This would make him one of the most prolific serial killers of our time. His classmates joked about his so-called license to kill and referred to him as 00 Swango. Little did they know how prophetic their words would be. Joseph Swango will never have the opportunity to use his brilliance for evil and to harm others. He will remain locked up, which is how it should be. He was cold-blooded and showed no remorse for his victims. On the contrary, He seemed to thrive and feel his best when he was actively harming others. And that is the very type of menace to society that should stay locked tightly behind prison bars. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and positively review the show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us out. You can find us on most social media platforms: Twitter at tcfcpod, Facebook.com/slash tcfcpodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email tcfcpod at gmail.com. Don't forget you can find me on the Get Vocal platform every Thursday at 7pm Central Time to discuss the latest in true crime. This episode was written by Mary Cole. Research and content editing by Brittany Martinez. Audio engineering is provided by the best in the business, Nico at we Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at WeTalkOfDreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com.